Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and this is a podcast for people who are new to the field or interested in public health. And this morning I'm in Sydney at the Heart Foundation and I'm going to be interviewing Julianne Mitchell, who's the National Director of Prevention. Thank you for joining us, Julianne. Hi, Emily. How are you? Could you maybe um, start by telling us uh, what the Heart Foundation does? Okay, well, the Heart Foundation's primary objective is to reduce the level of heart disease in the community. We really want a community free of heart disease. So our um, mission is really to provide support and care to those living with heart disease, but equally to advocate to reduce the risk of heart disease in the community, whether that's through lifestyle issues, whether it's through improving the health system that we have, so it better caters to people at risk of heart disease, or indeed it's investigating and in investing in research. That's quite broad. You it do a lot. Broad, yes. <laughs> How much does heart disease affect people in Australia? It's a lot, right? It is. It's the leading cause of death in, amongst um, Australians and um, really almost two in three families are affected by cardiovascular disease in some shape or form. Yeah, so that's a lot. It is. It touches us all. And um, I think in that way, it really has relevance and resonance with um, everyday Australians. Yeah. And what's your specific role here? What What does your day, what do your days look like? Yeah, look, it's a, a mixed bag, really. As the um, head of prevention in at the Heart Foundation, that covers a spectrum of um, areas or topics, portfolios. So it includes tobacco control, physical activity, food and nutrition, risk reduction, and by that I mean um, encouraging people to have heart health checks so that they know their personal risk of heart disease, and a personal passion of mine, um, women and heart disease, because we have much to do in that space. I did, I was Googling you this morning. I saw you did a, you were an ambassador for a bike riding yes. event. What, could you tell me about that? I'm sorry, forget the name. No, no, it's Gear Up Girl. Gear Up and Girl, so that's right. It's an annual bike ride that um, is held every year here in Sydney. We do it on or as close to International Women's Day as possible. And it's a bike ride for women and girls. So it's really about women coming together in a non-competitive way to ride off-road um, together. And so you have the option of either riding 20K, 40K, 60K or 80K, but it, most of the course is flat as a tack. So we take the back roads and um, bike paths from Olympic Park, which is in the western suburbs of Sydney, um, to Cronulla. So we sort of come across to the coast and then ride down the coast. It's so much fun. It is fantastic. I like that you put in the flat bit because I was <laughs> thinking I wouldn't be able to do it if there were things. No, no. I, I, you know, I am the typical bike rider that goes, I don't want to ride on a road. I want it to be flat. I want to enjoy it. I want to look at something that's visually interesting. And I think the bike ride along is fantastic and it has a energy about it because it is young girls and, and women um, that is different to any other sort of fun run or um, event that we we're involved in. Yeah. And does it raise money or is it just about yeah, awareness? It, it's a, it sort of has a number of um, different objectives. Certainly it's to encourage more women to be physically active and to look at you know ways to be 
incidentally active, to use their bike as a way to get around town, um, go from one place to another. So discovery of what where the bike paths are in Sydney. Secondly, we do, it's to raise awareness about heart disease in women and the fact that um, nearly three times as many women will die of heart disease as they will of breast cancer. And oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I so, should do that. Work in public health. Well, you know, that's our challenge. Only three in ten women are aware of that. And so, you know, our message is to encourage women to be as vigilant about their heart health as they are about their breast health. Yeah. And so it's an awareness raising piece. And then thirdly, it is, you know, an option to get sponsorship and to raise funds for the Heart Foundation. And so what are some of the projects that you're working on within your portfolio yeah. at the moment in prevention? Is there something you're really excited about? Yeah, look, I think the Heart Fund, you know, what research shows is that people's awareness of heart disease has really dropped in recent years. I think the perception is that it's easily fixed, that you go into hospital, have a stent put in, you're home in two days, you're running a marathon uh, in two weeks. That is not actually the case. Um, you know, heart disease can leave a lasting legacy on people and, and their families. And so this year we've been running a major sort of awareness campaign to put heart disease back on the public agenda. So earlier this year we ran a campaign called Serial Killer. It was using the concept of true crime, which is what people are really interested in. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was, you know, drawing the parallel that heart disease is like a serial killer. You don't know where it is. You don't know when it's going to get you. It was edgy for the Heart Foundation yeah. to take that concept. But I'm pleased to say that actually it really worked well in raising the issue one of the calls to action we had was for people to come online and do our heart age calculator which gives you an indication of what your heart age is compared to your real age and hopefully is a motivator for people to start to think about whether heart disease is personally relevant to them you know too many of us push it out there and go oh, you know that's something that older people get i don't need to think about it but actually heart disease doesn't discriminate. It affects men and women, young and old. So we had seven policy asks around that serial killer campaign. The first was to get heart health checks, uh, which you have with your doctor, on um, the Medicare. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that we achieved That's that. Great. Um, That's huge. Uh, it was huge. That's been 10 years in the making because it, it's not something that just happened overnight. No. We've been pushing, arguing, advocating, um, building the evidence base to support why you know, people between the ages of 45 and 70, or indeed for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, those over the age of 30, should have a heart health check and it should be rebated. So we achieved that. We also, as a result of that campaign, secured funding from the government to update our absolute risk guidelines, which are the guidelines that underpin having a heart health check with your doctor and provide you with a calculation of how much at risk you are of having a heart attack or stroke in the next five years. So it'll spit out whether you're at low, medium or high risk and allows a GP to then put together a 
a sort of care plan or a, um, a prevention plan for you to actually manage your risk factors. Yeah, I'm so going to make my parents do the online calculator tonight. I'm going to yeah, go look, and call them. Yeah, look, it is amazing. You know, um, the UK and New Zealand have taken this approach and hard age calculators are now popping up uh, around the place. But it actually is quite an emotional response, I think, um, when you see that your hard age may be five years greater than your mm. actual age, it is a motivational sort of tool to actually make them stop and think, oh, well, maybe if I play around with this calculator and if my blood pressure came down or if I lost a bit of weight or um, what does this do to my overall heart age risk? So, um, And then it might be a prompt for them to do, to actually to change their things. Go, yeah, and that's been the experience in the UK that actually what it did do was prompt people to look more closely at their lifestyle and look at physical activity or, you know, their food and nutrition sort yeah. of patterns. This might be a silly question, I apologise if it is, but why do you think the difference in the perception around things like breast cancer and heart disease, specifically for women, what do you think causes that sort of difference in, not fear, but yeah, the awareness of people? Yeah, and reluctance perhaps to talk about. Look, I think that the general view is that when cancer arrives in your life, it's sort of the finger of fate. you don't know when it might appear and how it might appear and so there's a sense that it's something you can't control. The perception around heart disease is it's something that you've brought on yourself Mm -hmm. either because you've smoked or you're drunk or you weren't as physically active as um, perhaps you could have been. Now we know that's not always Mm -hmm. the case, that family history is a big determinant and you know whilst we know a lot about heart disease we don't know all there is to know about heart disease and we do know that in about 30% um, of cases of you know heart attacks heart disease people don't have any risk factors and so there's something else going on in um, actually the development of heart disease so there's still a lot we don't know and it's a very simplistic or reductive kind of approach to go oh well, because you weren't physically active in your 20s and 30s and you went out clubbing and did all these sort of unhealthy things, that therefore you um, developed heart disease further down the track. And I think we've got a lot of work to do to change that perception because as a consequence, people don't talk about it, they feel ashamed, or some people do, if they've been diagnosed with heart disease. I think the heart is a symbol for a lot of things and some people see if I've got a damaged heart perhaps that indicates a weakness about me so I think there's a lot of psychology tied up with the heart that changes how people see it compared to how they see cancer which is much more publicly talked about stories are more openly shared the story of survivorship is much stronger in the communities. Yeah, I really hadn't thought about it like that, but that's Mm. really true. Mm. Uh, So I might just ask, is there one more project um, that you're specifically excited about at the moment? And then I'll move on to maybe some of your career journey. Okay. Well, I am very excited about a Women and Heart Disease Forum we're holding here in Sydney at the University of New South Wales on the 19th of June. We held our first um, interdisciplinary Women and Heart Disease Forum in 2017 and we really didn't know if anyone was going to turn up and it was oversubscribed and it was just a fantastic day. So we had cardiologists, we had oncologists, we had epidemiologists, 
um, psychologists really looking at all the different facets of heart disease in women um, across the life spectrum. So looking at congenital disease, looking at the interplay between cancer treatments, particularly in breast cancer, and then, you know, in some cases, those women subsequently go on to develop heart failure. So what is it that's happening in, um, in that interplay in treatment? We were looking at pregnancy and heart disease and you know there's a lot of emerging evidence now that vascular complications in pregnancy are a future indication of heart disease, particularly with regard to preeclampsia, high blood pressure, gestational diabetes. Okay. So the conventional view is all oh, those conditions disappear once a baby is born and the mother is home free but actually what the research is now showing is there is some kind of legacy left behind and so those women need to be monitored more closely. The conundrum is we don't know whether pregnancy triggers some kind of response in the woman at that time that leads to those complications or indeed whether pregnancy as the body's ultimate stress test actually brings to the surface an underlying issue that may have been there but hadn't been detected to that point. So women and heart disease and the research that's happening in this space is dynamic, exciting, it's happening globally not just here in Australia and I think there's a lot of catch up because you know generally speaking heart disease in women is underdiagnosed, undertreated and undermanaged and we need to change that paradigm and ensure that every woman in Australia is getting equal care um, for whatever condition she has and is being adequately managed through the health system. And then what comes from that? Is there a report at the end? Or? Yeah, there is a report. There's been, um, at the last forum, we had a five-point action plan to progress. I think, you know, I'll be reporting back on that um, action plan and I think it really sets a sort of policy agenda for what we need to do in Australia to really advance the care of women, either in the um, prevention of heart disease, the detection of heart disease or the management of heart disease. That sounds great. Maybe I could tweet about that after yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. So how did you first get interested in heart health or chronic diseases mm. in general? It's a very interesting story. Well, yeah. Maybe not to anyone. <laughs> it's interesting to me. <laughs> because only because um, when I left high school, I'd grown up in a country town in um, country Victoria on a sheep farm, ridden around on my horses pretending I was in some 19th century sort of um, gothic. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so certainly nursing, oh, nursing or um, medicine was certainly not in my scheme of things. I wanted to be an English high school teacher. I just thought I love my um, high school teachers and I thought I'd do the same. Anyway, long story short, went off to universities, did a BA, sort of got to the end and went, oh, I don't know that I do want to be a school teacher. I went overseas, so I went to India for six weeks. It changed my world and then I thought, oh my God, what can I do that actually allows me to travel the world and see things? And my sister was doing nursing at the time and I thought, oh, do a year of nursing, become a nurse's aide, and then that will allow me to work around the world. After you know six weeks of nursing, I hated it, but I continued, finished it off, practiced, um, you know, did my staff here and all that. I went overseas and uh, as I planned, and I actually got 
a job, private nursing, to look after this woman to, who thought she was going into hospital for a appendicitis. Um, and so I was really there just for a week to look after her. Once she went in, they opened her up. They found that she had, she was in stage four of ovarian cancer. Mm. She was 32, she had this oh gorgeous God. two-year-old and she was terminal. And so I ended up staying and um, looking after her um, until virtually the end, I left just before she died. But I think the experience of that really galvanised me on the path of prevention. And when I came back to Australia, um, two years later, I just looked for a job where I could pull my nursing, but also in my BA, I've done a major on women's studies, that used to be called women's studies, gender studies. Mm. And so my first job coming back was to be an education officer for um, what was the pilot of the National Cervical Screening Program. So my job was to educate um, women about what a pap test was, what a reminder service was, and to um, really encourage them to have regular pap tests. So it set me on a journey that went from being in an acute setting, nursing, to actually thinking about public health on a broad scale. And as a consequence of that, I've worked in women's health, both breast screen and cervical screening, tobacco control, public health nutrition, and you know, women and heart disease. So it's been that catalyst of being in London and having that experience really set my journey in a way that I would never have expected didn't make sense at the time but looking back I can see the pathway. Yeah like Steve Jobs says you can't join the dots like prospectively you can only do it looking back. Yeah absolutely. Yeah and so it has it's a bit different to research I work in research so it's very much you kind of have to have one area so not working in research is that you've worked in a lot of different areas it's easier to change around a little bit and obviously they're all related like tobacco control prevention all the different areas. Look I think I mean you know I think in looking back now in the 80s and 90s, the role of health promotion was really expanding in those days. I was fortunate enough to work at the Cancer Council of Victoria for a number of years. I then worked at the Cancer Council New South Wales here. I then went into the health department. Um, I was just fortunate in that I was able to move and I was on the cusp of policy um, making decisions and so the cervical screening program, the Victorian pilot was scaled up to a national program. Breast screening was similar. When I came to New South Wales, it was really cancer organisations starting to look at food and nutrition. I then went into the health department. My job was to introduce smoke-free bans in pubs and clubs in New South Wales. So policy has been a sort of a key component of the work that I've done and I've really enjoyed pulling in the research but pulling in the stakeholders to actually shape something that is actually going to be the benefit to the benefit of the public at large so research has been a big part of it I personally haven't felt the need to actually sometimes I you know I played with the idea of maybe doing a PhD but um I guess I'm just a bit more of a practical person. I think you're doing a lot of good for the world where you are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but um, it's certainly, I think it's pulling the composite bits together. And and I think that's one of the 
intrigues and interests and certainly the joys for me in policy formation. It's sort of pulling the different strands together to actually put something together that is actually going to hopefully make a difference. Okay, so now you're obviously in a position of leadership mm. now. Mm. And so if there's someone out there, they're doing an MPH or a PhD and they think that sounds amazing, I want to be that mm. person in you know 10 or 20 years, what, what kind of things can they do? Look, I think, I mean, it, it's interesting. The world has changed in some ways and, and I think the very thing you're doing now, using social media to actually educate, entertain, um, amplify, is something that wasn't there 20 years ago. So I really encourage people to engage with social media. I think it's a great way to personally build a profile, but to have, you know, to have something to say, and I think that's really important. So stay on top of whatever is current for your field. Um, engage in the policy debates. Um, Certainly, from my experience, evidence is never enough. You know, I think one of the traps that sometimes happens is people think, well, I've got this evidence. If only I could show this to a health minister, they would see the light of day. But, you know, that is only the stepping stone. So I think that these days, to build a, a profile or a career in public health, Staying on top of the evidence is one thing, but actually building a network of connections and being a member of the Public Health Association so that you're getting exposure not only to your field, but to all the other public health debates that are going on. Find a mentor. Um, I've heard that a lot. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't have to be the formal, like you read in magazines and um, journals all the time. I don't think it has to be as formal as something that you do you meet with this person once a month it may be just for a period of time or you may only seek out that person several times over a course of six months but it's actually a trusted person that you feel can assist you or give guidance to you um, around a particular issue and I think by and large public health people are very supportive of each other and it's my favorite um, part of public health (laughs) (laughs) it is because I think you know, in the scheme of things, as we all know, less than 1% of the public health dollar, you know, I'm talking all the health dollar, goes to public health and prevention. So we really do have to reach across to each other, support each other, look for those common areas of um, interest that enable us to move the whole argument forward. So... Excellent. All good advice. And do you have any... I'll I'll get to my last question in a minute, Mm. but just before we go, have I missed any questions or is there anything sort of really pressing that you want to get out to the world Uh, or to our audience? It's not the world who listens, unfortunately. (laughs) Oh, it will be the world (laughs) one day, Emily. It will be. Look, I I think that um, chronic disease is an issue that people just sometimes put in a too hard basket. But I think there is a lot of opportunity, energy. I think that issues around climate change, um, sustainability, you know, air pollution, our environment are really pulling in new considerations in public health. And I think that opens up the number of players that can be working to public health. I think we've seen some significant shifts in, say, the built environment for those that are active around physical activity and how we can create environments that make the healthy choice the easy choice. Yeah. I think we're going to see the same in climate change that 
you know, the choices we make about foods, the food miles, all these things are bringing a different angle to maybe some of our traditional thinking around food policy, um, physical activity policy. So I think it's a very dynamic time, but I think we have to work together because I don't think that it's a challenge to actually take on some of the players and industry in this space. And, you know, I think that in the next five to ten years we're really going to have to push hard and try and beat down this nanny state argument that so often gets levelled at public health um, practitioners that we just want to tie everyone up in red knots and and that's not the case. Yeah, especially around chronic disease. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, thank you so much. Um, Now my last and favourite question, which I have prepped you for, (laughs) didn't forget for once. Five minutes. Um, (laughs) Uh, a favourite book that's made you sort of challenge the way you thought about the world? Well, I'm not sure that I can think of a, a book off the top of my head that's challenged me in the way I think about the world, but an enjoyable novel I've yes. read recently is one called Less by Andrew Greer. This is a Pulitzer Prize novel um, from 2018, and it's about a failed novelist and what happens as he tries to get crumbs of recognition um, traveling the world it's a book I started by hating on when I first read it or first start you know the first 30 pages or so but I ended up loving it and I think it's it's a story perhaps of all of us where we doubt ourselves question our um, expertise I'm familiar with the phenomenon <laughs> <laughs> see conspiracy theories out there and I think you know there is salvation at the end and um, and I think that that's probably there's something that perhaps we all recognize in that story but you know if we have doubt if we question ourselves it's not to say that we're doing the wrong thing it's probably healthy that we do examine self-examine and um, look at our motivations because it can help us to a clearer path going forward yeah that's really true so I know I said it was my last question but I'm just curious what makes you what made you stick with it when you didn't like it um possibly because it was our book club (laughs) 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 but um because I'd heard such great things about it and and it was polarizing some people really disliked it some liked it and as my theme in life is, I usually end up, I start by hating something or disliking something intensely, and it ends up being the core of my life or the centre of my life. Whether Occasionally that's been with friends, some of my closest friends are the people that I disagreed with in the first couple of times I met them. Uh, it's my attitude to physical activity, which um, I disliked as a child, but now it is an integral part of my life, just as stress management let alone the sort of social benefits that I get from it. Um, yes, you know, even nursing. When my sister said she was going nursing, she'd gone into a drama course at um, what was Monash at those days. They offered that course and she gave it up to go nursing and I couldn't believe it. It was like, my God, you know. And then, you know, four years later, I was doing nursing myself. So I am a woman of um, sort of, contrariness I think I love that well thank you this has been really wonderful I've really enjoyed hearing all about your work oh thank you it's lovely to um, spend some time with you excellent Um, and thank you everyone for listening